Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Each episode will feature a guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into human possibility. If you like what you hear today, please add a rating and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the podcast. Today, I'm really excited to have Ruth Whitman on the show. Ruth is an author, journalist, and documentary filmmaker from London who's currently living in the USA with hilarious consequences. Her essays, cultural criticism, and political journalism have appeared in the New York Times, The Guardian, Glamour Magazine, and other places, and she's a regular contributor to Time.com. Whitman is author of America the Anxious, How Our Pursuit of Happiness is Creating a Nation of Nervous wrecks, And just to be clear, that's the American title of the book, not the British title of the book, which is a different title. Thanks for so much for being on the show today, Ruth. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's, it was enjoyable reading your book. And even when I had okay. disagreements, I had disagreements and yet still laughed. So I don't know what, that's, <laughs> well, that's what that means. <laughs> that's a good start. <laughs> maybe, maybe I should be outraged. Uh, but instead, I was like, oh, that's funny. Even though you completely <laughs> made fun of my whole field, I was like, that's funny. <laughs> well, that's very noble yeah. of you. Yeah. <laughs> You're a better person than I am. <laughs> well, no, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. But I, you know, I should say I lived in England for basically my whole 20s was me living in England. And I felt a great nice. affinity towards the sense of humor of the Brits and the cheekiness. And I think that I felt more comfortable with that, that sensibility than among my fellow Americans. So uh, oh, interesting. I think yeah. I identified with your sense of humor because I get it. Like, I get where it's coming from. Okay, so let me start one question with you. What was it like for you coming to America? I mean, it was only a couple years ago, right? Five years ago or so? Or? Five years ago. Yeah. Uh, no, actually, six yeah. years ago. Six, six years, years ago. ago. Okay. Oh, yeah, just went without me even realizing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So it was a culture shock. I mean, 
a lot of that was not necessarily to do with the America part of it, because I mean, I had a very busy job. I had, you know, a lot of friends, a lot of family in London, and then we moved to California completely cold. So mm. we didn't know anybody. Suddenly, you know, I went from having all this, you know, social network to having this kind of 12 cavernous hours a day to fill when my, you know, from when my husband left for work in the morning until he came home and I could have an adult conversation. So that was one piece of it. But the other piece was it was quite a culture shock. I mean, I think California is probably the extreme of a lot of these trends that I talk about in the book. And so, you know, I was used to being a slightly jaded, slightly skeptical Brit. And suddenly I'm in the land of self-actualization where everybody's pursuing happiness in a very, very determined way. Well, what part of California are you? San Francisco? I live near San Francisco in Berkeley, which so not you know, has too recently f- become... Yeah, not too far. The Bay Area. Well, I was going to say not too far from Esalen Institute, yes. which is all about the self-potential movement you know, that was big in the yeah. 70s. You know, I should state up front, I'm a big, personally, I'm a big fan of self-actualization. But, yeah. you know, self-actualization doesn't have to be individualistic. It doesn't have to be 100% individualistic. It doesn't have to yes. be that way. That's how it tends to, that's what sells the most seems to be. Like mar- yes. when you look at marketing strategies, you tend to find like things that are individualistically happy or sell better than like, hey, join my, hey guys, please uh, join my program. I'll teach you how to be a more compassionate, loving person who has social justice concerns. Like if we yes. did that experiment, you know, and try to sell, you know, because you know, on Facebook, it constantly pops up with people trying to sell like supplements. And why isn't like the more collective communal aspect of it? Why doesn't that sell as much? Well, that's an interesting, it's a really interesting point. I think you're right. And, you know, I've had this with my own, uh, but, you know, writing the book myself that the publishers are always raking. They're like, can't you make it a self-help book? You know, can't you do a self-help message? And I'm saying, well, you know, a lot of it is about deconstructing that stuff, but they still, you know, they know. Did they read your book? Did they read it? Yeah, they read it. And, you know, I can understand that. I'm not, this is not a criticism because, you know, I think if people invest, you know, many hours and $20 or whatever in buying a book, they probably want something that they can take home and use in their own lives. So there's nothing wrong with that. But I think that self-actualization in America has become quite an individualistic thing. And I agree with you, it doesn't have to be. But I think that's partly, this for various reasons, partly, absolutely, it's commercially driven. It's something that sells. And it's, you know, in many ways, feeding off a culture, which is quite individualistic, which believes in you know, individual hard work in meritocracy and working hard at something to achieve results, you know, and in the rights and freedoms of the individual. So it's very culturally rooted, I think. It is. It is. I want to say, though, you said at some point that like in England, there's a different sort of tone to more skepticism surrounding mindfulness and stuff. Again, I don't know if that's true of all of England, just like you said, you know, your arguments are probably not true of all of America either. You know, I was in a bookstore in Cambridge, England recently, and half of the bookstore were books on mindfulness. Mindfulness. Yeah. And, well, I was, I was just going to say to you, absolutely. I mean, I think that even in the five years since we've been away, mindfulness has it's been crazy. huge in the UK. I would say I mean, it's bigger in the UK right now than it is in America. Yeah. And they've rolled it out in schools and workplaces. I mean, they've invested a lot of taxpayer money into bringing it into public institutions in our national health service. And I believe that, you know, that has really outstripped the evidence that is exists for it. Yeah. I just wanted to bring that up because I was shocked with how proportion of the, uh, uh, what was it called? It's a British name of a bookstore over there in the- uh, uh, Is it Waterstones? Probably Waterstones. Yeah. Waterstones. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 
I was amazed at that. And a lot of that actually is due a large part to my colleague, Martin Seligman, who has a relationship with the, your prime minister, or yeah, at least well, your prior prime minister. Yes, yeah, yeah. And he was very influenced. So David Cameron was very influenced by Martin Seligman's work. And I write about that a bit in the book as well. So yes, it's interesting, because I think generally, British culture is more skeptical about new trends. And, you know, the Brits are hard sell, I think they're a harder sell than Americans as a general rule. But mindfulness definitely has, you know, managed to, to make that sell. And, yeah. you know, and I think British culture, you know, when it comes not just mindfulness, but the happiness industry in general has become, you know, the UK has embraced a lot of these trends. And, you know, the cynicism is kind of on its way out in a way. Yeah, you know, you're right. And uh, I wonder if you were going to see like a flip, or, you know, like you're going to have to like yeah. write a book, Britain, Britain, the anxious or something. <laughs> right? uh, I know. Yeah. And yeah, America's skeptical. Well, you know, I always said that when we first moved here, you could blindfold me and read me out the Facebook statuses of my friends. And I could tell you which ones were British and which ones were American. And the American ones were always incredibly positive And yeah, life is great. My husband's the cutest guy I've ever seen. And my kids are beautiful. And you know, everything's wonderful. And I'm feeling blessed. And the British ones would always be, you know, I'm, I'm waiting for a bus and it's raining and everything's rubbish. But now, even within five years, that, that's changed again. And the British statuses are becoming a lot more positive and thankful and happy and all the rest of it. So I think, yeah, the cultural difference is definitely lessening. Yeah. You're talking about cultural pressures on self-presentation strategies. That was a mouthful of what I just said. But um, <laughs> that's in how I would frame that in terms of the psychological literature, since this is the psychology podcast. But who are, who are people really? Like, you know, it sounds like people in Britain and Australia, I've noticed, tend to de self-deprecate themselves as a self-presentation yeah. strategy because that's associated with higher status. Interesting. Whereas in America, the opposite is associated with higher status. But we right. all want higher status. I mean, that's still a fundamental human need. We kind of just like present ourselves in whatever way the society, you know, like appreciates more. Yes, I think that's an excellent point and really interesting because I think you're right. I think in Britain, you know, it's the classic thing that someone who's, um, you know, I remember reading something somewhere where this woman was talking about her husband who was a brain surgeon and, and the guy says, oh, you know, I just do a little bit of plumbing here and there and obviously downplaying it. And you know, but everybody recognizes those social cues. Yeah. And those that, you know, he's a brain surgeon, for goodness sake, but it would be embarrassing in Britain to walk into a party and say, I'm a brain surgeon, I'm top of my field, I'm fantastic. And, well, you know. well, that makes me wonder, is there a difference? Is there a different flavor between motivational speakers in England and motivational speakers in America? Because I've noticed that motivational speakers in America, their whole brand and everything is just how many awards they've won, who they know. Right, right, my yeah. good friend Oprah or my good friend right. the, the Dalai Lama, you know, <laughs> like, you know, you're constantly name dropping. I mean, you'll see this phenomenon among American yeah. motivational speakers. And that is important for their brand to do that in America because it seems to be working, right? It seems to, that that's right. what people eat up. You know, but well, that, and they want to yeah. be associated with that. Yeah. yeah, that's such an interesting point. I'm now picturing a British motivational yeah, speaker like? who comes in saying, "I'm rubbish and yeah. useless, and this is awful, uh, and you know, you're all yeah. rubbish." And, yeah. You know, I don't think there's so much of a trend for motivational speakers as they exist in the U.S. I think some of the U.S. speakers, like Tony Robbins and some of the and Oprah as well, have made inroads in the UK, but I don't think there's so much of a culture of homegrown British motivational speakers as such. I'm sure they do exist, but. I'm struggling to... We should do a parody of what a <laughs> British motivational speaker would be like. That, I think that would go viral. That yeah. would be a viral video. It's yeah. true, actually. Yeah. I'm rubbish, you're rubbish. Like yeah. TEDx Britain. Yeah, right. <laughs>
<laughs> this yeah. is an okay idea, nothing special, but you know, it's, uh, yeah. it's not really going to change the world, but it might change some small part of your. Yes, I felt I felt happy the other day, but I am very sorry about that. Uh, it, <laughs> yeah, I promise it. it I, I promise it won't happen again. Yeah, <laughs> it was very pleasing. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So you said the whole process of being happy has become painfully comically neurotic. You still stand by that statement? Yeah, I mean. I think that we agonize, and I do this as much, you know, this is not me standing apart from this trend and saying this is not, you know, nothing to do with me. I do this all the time that I'm sitting there thinking, you know, am I as happy as I could be? Would I be happier if I had a different partner or if I had a different, different, you know, if my kids were different or if I had a different job or if I did this or if I did that? And I think we overthink happiness to the point where it's anxiety inducing. I agree with that in large part. I find if I focus too much on you know, oh my gosh, I haven't meditated yet today. Or like, right. oh, oh, oh man, like the Apple Watch has all these notifications, the new Apple Watch. Every right. freaking 10 minutes, it says, have you, it says, stand up, uh, breathe, <laughs> uh, breathe, um, et cetera. I don't need a, do I need a reminder to breathe? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it gets, I mean, my son actually won an award in school. He's in first grade. He won an award for breathing at school, which there you go. But I mean, I, I do think that, you know, wearable technology is a big thing. I don't have a watch like that, but I think it can just make you quite obsessive about your own happiness. And I don't think that is particularly healthy. So you're not just a mean-spirited enemy of joy then, <laughs> as you say <laughs> you know, in the book. As I say, <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, I completely... You know, I hope that people realize that this is coming from a place of loving being here. I love living in America. I admire the American zest for life and yeah. friendliness and openness. I think those things are good. And I hope people see that in what I've written. And this is not a kind of criticism. I think as much it's a journey about myself to understand, and, you know, my own neuroticism about happiness and how I can work with that than to criticize anybody else. So do you have any friends in America? <laughs> or anywhere he said with disbelief no in america i do i have a lot of friends now and you know i've been so lucky that and i always say that i think it's much easier to move here as a british person than it would be to move from california to london and do the, the thing the other way around i've got some great friends here now which has made a huge difference and that was partly you know what drove one of the main conclusions of the book which is that our happiness is so fundamentally based on our social relationships that this very individualistic approach is kind of slightly steering us in the wrong direction. And I could see just from my own experience that going from being socially isolated and lonely to being part of a community and having friends and all the rest of it just made such a tremendous difference to my happiness that all of the rest of it, you know, how often I meditated on my Apple Watch or whatever, mm. really um, kind of paled into ins insignificance. So the specific practice put in quotes, spiritual practices that you criticize are tend to be the ones that are most individualistic. Is that right? So yoga, meditation, give me the list of the things that irk you the most. I think it's not that these things irk me. It's just that I believe that they've been very, very, very heavily oversold and sometimes in a, as a commercial prospect, which I think in a way that really outstrips the evidence for what these things can actually do for people. But I think a lot of it is to do with trying to change the way people think. So mindfulness, positive thinking, these kinds of trends, gratitude, these sorts of things, which are all about, you know, don't change your circumstances. It's all about what's going on inside your head. So change your attitude. And that I think is a phenomenon which I think is problematic and has led. There is nothing wrong with any 
these things in isolation. But I think that overemphasis on them can lead to a culture where we don't actually consider people's circumstances. Yeah, but why are you going to hate on gratitude journals? I mean, what did gratitude <laughs> journals do to you? That's sounds- well, yeah. I mean, I said I said this in the book. I said picking on gratitude journals is like picking a fight with a fridge magnet. I mean, it just seems ridiculous. <laughs> Well, I think that what the issue is, is there's nothing wrong with writing a gratitude journal. If you want to write a gratitude journal, do it. Great. But I think where we run into problems, I mean, I interviewed this woman who was really living the poverty line. She was working in this terrible job in fast food service. She couldn't afford to go to the doctor. She, her kids were, you know, had their teeth, they couldn't go to the dentist and their teeth were hurting and she literally couldn't afford to take them to the dentist because she had no healthcare plan at work, et cetera, et cetera. This is a quite a common situation for many Americans. And then she would go into work and they, instead of paying them vacation benefits and healthcare and all the rest of it, they said, write a gratitude journal, be grateful for what you have, change your attitude. And it just, for her, felt like this incredible gaslighting of her real experiences. You know, she's saying, actually, these things are shitty and hard and difficult. To tell me to be more grateful is really not to fundamentally acknowledge what the problems are. So that's one piece of it. The other piece of it is that it just kind of annoyed me that I read all these positive psychology books and people say that gratitude, writing a gratitude journal is, makes a huge difference to people's happiness. They really sell this concept as being this huge, great thing. And then you go and look at the actual academic studies that these are based on, and it's bullshit. I mean, th- there is very little evidence to show that these things work. And there are plenty of studies that show that they actually make people feel worse. And so this is what bothered me. I was like, fine, you know, if these things are helpful, but let's be honest about how helpful they really are. Maybe they work for some people, not for others. All of this is fine. But to really go out and say, this is the answer to happiness. And then I think if you're not doing it, then you're not grateful enough. Yeah, it's just, it seems like you're criticizing the cultural manifestation of it, not the science of it. I mean, if you actually look at, I don't know if we're looking at the same literature, but if you look at, you know, some of Bob Emmons' writings on gratitude, and yeah. I mean, it's incredibly nuanced stuff. And in fact, like Sonia Lubomirsky, who we'll get to later, I know you talk about her, yeah. but she's done, she presented at the latest Positive Psychology Conference some really, truly interesting nuanced work showing dosage effects of gratitude journaling and stuff where, yes, there's a curvilinear effect, like too much of it, and it loses its effect. There's the opposite of the dosage effect. So it's not like, you know, the more you do, the better you'll do, you know, that there's an optimal dosage during the week or so, yeah. et cetera. Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that her results, so I went and pulled up, I mean, that was a good example because I read her, that, sorry, there's lots to unpack in what you said that. I, I, in the book, I went and looked at her work specifically because she wrote a popular book called The How of Happiness, which really, really heavily sells gratitude as a major component of what you can do to improve your own happiness. And, you know, in the book, and I think there's a, a problem here because I think there is a problem when the same people doing the lab work are the same people writing the self-help books that sell the lab work because that is really? a financial conflict of interest. Yeah. I mean, I think if you're making money from selling gratitude, you are incentivized. And I'm not saying that she's doing this, but I think you're, it, there is a financial incentive to oversell the results of what you're doing. And if it was a drug company, if the drug companies were doing the research and publishing it and selling it, I think that they would be made to disclose the financial interest in that. So I think there's a conflict of interest problem inherent there. So you're saying that you don't think scientists should be writing about their work? Is that what you're no, saying? I think they should be writing about their work. But I think when you take a scientific study that happens, so you have the same people who are saying, we are researching gratitude and the importance of it. 
And then they're also going out and selling a, a course and an app and a self-help book and whatever that sells you, you know, the, your gratitude journal. And if you do these five things and a self-help book for a popular audience, that is a conflict of interest. And I'm not saying that scientists shouldn't write about their work, but I think they need to disclose in their academic work what their financial interest is in the in topic. I mean, we, I mean, surely you would agree so with interesting. that, right? It's so interesting. I don't know if I agree with that because I mean, I'm thinking this through. I think it's a it's a complicated issue. I'm trying to think of where exactly the conflicts of interest are, like really where the conflicts of interest are. So there'd be a conflict, I suppose, if the courses you were selling, et cetera, were somehow coloring your science. But if you're doing good science and you find in your laboratory that there are certain interventions that are scientifically effective, you think there's a conflict if you then try to monetize that finding? No, I don't think that you should be prevented from monetizing it. I think you should disclose your financial interest in it. And I think what happened, and this is not a, a criticism of Sonia Lubomirsky in particular at all, but what I did find was that in her popular book, you know, there was this huge chapter or multiple chapters about gratitude in particular and how incredibly effective it was and how useful it was. And this is a best-selling book that sold, you know, I think it's on its 15th reprint. You know, it's a very you know, it's it, a classic. It's, it's, yeah, a, yeah, it's a, a classic, yeah. and it's it's sold to your average sort of armchair happiness seeker, yeah. and it's sold to students. Of Wasn't your gynecologist reading it or something? Am, yeah, I, am my, I making that my up? My yeah. gynecologist was actually reading a different book, but yes, my gynecologist uh, probably has read that book because she's yeah. very interested yeah. in that topic. But when I went back and checked the footnotes and went back to all those studies and looked at the data and had people help me go through the statistics, it was nothing remotely like how it had been presented there gotcha. and there was a very mixed and even in her own lab work she, there were studies that showed that some gratitude journaling made people feel worse rather than better mm. there were some studies that showed that there was no effect no difference between the gratitude group and the control group there were some which showed a small difference but only under very very select conditions there were somewhere that she didn't actually publish the data there were others where she quoted other people's studies so for instance a martin seligman study which sounded absolutely phenomenal as if it was going to completely change the world and nobody would ever be depressed or unhappy again if they just got the gratitude journal. And when I started digging around trying to find this study, it had never been published and never been peer-reviewed. I mean, it didn't exist anywhere to even look at the data. So I'm not saying that anything in bad faith happened, but I'm saying that, you know, we should proceed with caution. Yeah, so it sounds like you're arguing, you know, you're saying there's a lot of overclaiming of yes. effects. And that could be a very valid point. I'm trying to think of like, you know, you're holding the scientists as such a high, like you're not criticizing Tony Robbins for overclaiming. He doesn't do any science. Well, Tony Robbins, yeah. I mean, so Tony Robbins, I think is a different thing because I think most people, but maybe this is not fair, but Tony Robbins is not claiming to be a scientist. I mean, Tony Robbins is, you know, he's a motivational trainer. He says this is his own experience. These things work. I think he's massively overselling. Would you, would, would you rather have someone who does good science and oversells their science or someone who doesn't do science at all and sells everything that they say. I mean, which would you rather have? So you want an ideal world where people do the good science and then they state in their publicity materials, our effect size was 0.45. No yeah. one's going to know what effect size means. What it means. But I think if you're writing a, a book, a popular book with a chapter saying, you know, gratitude is the best thing ever and this will substantially change your life, I think it's only fair to say, well, out of the five lab studies that I did at my lab, three of them showed no effect. One of them showed a very, very small effect, but only if you do it on Tuesdays. 
and only after very complex statistical analysis. And one of them showed, you know, a actually I don't think she replicated the Emmons McCulloch findings in any of her studies. So, so, so in a lot of ways, it's actually a backhanded compliment of what you're saying. You're actually saying you're holding scientists up to an honesty standard that you don't yes, necessarily so, hold anyone else in your life up to. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think so, because I think a scientist is making claims that nobody else is, is making. And so, yes, of course, it's a whole separate issue, you know, the self-help industry and the Tony Robbins and the, you know, the hucksters and the motivational speakers. That's something that really needs to be looked into. But I feel like, I, yes, of course, I'm holding a Harvard scientist up to a higher standard than I am, you know. Yeah. Cool. I'm trying to like, this is great because I'm trying to like really pinpoint the argument yeah. to see whether or not I agree with it or not. Like, I don't know if I agree yeah. with something or not unless I really understand it. Do you know what I mean? So I'm trying yeah, to yeah. Right. I want to also make clear and I want to officially say I'm not calling Tony mm-hmm. Robbins a huckster. Nor am I. Nor am yeah, I. Yeah, yeah. Nor am I. And I think a lot of people, you know, and I think this is, and this is obviously something that you will be far more of an expert in than me. Because, you know, if you say to someone, well, it's all in the mind, your effect is all in the mind. Well, great. So is happiness. You know, if it works for you, then it works. You know, there's no higher standard than it working, you know, than you think it's working, if that makes sense. So, yeah. So um, it does make sense. It does. So just talking about the gratitude research for a second, I think that there's a kind of a lot of people have been making a false dichotomy that like, you can't have gratitude and also appreciate the circumstances. Like it doesn't have yeah. to be one or the other. Bob Emmons has done some really, really good work. I mean, I'll send you after this call. I'm going to send you papers, and I'll even put in the show notes some recent yeah. review papers where he, in the review paper, says explicitly like there's this conceptualization of gratitude in the general public, and then there's I'm going to present with the nuance of the science. So I'll send you that paper. Yeah, it's, I'd love to see that. Yeah. Yeah, I can see what irks you. And I think a lot of that does irk me too. So if I really understand it, and a lot of it sounds like, so there is some of it, like there is some culpability with scientists. So that, that that's true. But also a lot of it really is sort of how people are simplifying the science in the general public. They're making it so reductionistic and black and right. white. But I would say you're kind of making it black and white too when you pit gratitude against or having things that taking responsibility for your own actions self as well yeah. as caring about social justice etc you, you can have both yeah. as well you can yeah. you can but i think that and the reason why i've made this into a kind of dichotomy in a way rather than just saying yes of course you can have both and, and that's a very very fair and important point but in this particular book the how of happiness that we're talking about she draws this pie chart, which I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's sort of I has, am, I it's am, like yeah. a this this circle, yeah. and it's divided into which what proportion of our happiness is based on on what. And she allocates ten percent for circumstance, which is this tiny sliver, and she allocates forty percent for what's under your own control. Now I went back and looked at the research in a lot of detail as to what this is actually based on, and it's complete nonsense. I mean, the estimates in you know, it comes from very old papers from the 80s that, you know, and this is the most generous. I mean, even if you accept that those are the the best and most current thinking on the topic, it's really taken the absolute lowest possible, possible, possible estimate of circumstance and the highest, highest possible estimate of control. I don't think these things fit neatly into a pie chart anyway, but I think that this whole narrative of individual responsibility has been taken up by the positive psychology movement and they are the ones pushing that. So that's what I was pushing back against yeah gotcha i do like pie by the way i'm a big fan of pie pie oh my gosh Um, (laughs) what's your favorite pie oh you know i'm thinking like a pecan 
I had a delicious pecan pie yesterday, but I'm so I'm very heavily pregnant at the moment, and it there wasn't enough room in my body for this pie. I should have gone for the circumstance slice rather than the control slice. <laughs> the circumstance slice. Well, not like Weight Watchers. There's a, there's another reason why that cover is misleading that you didn't even mention. I can even add more into your arsenal if you want. There's a great misconception about what heritability coefficients mean or what twin study findings mean. No one is is talking about parceling different things within one person. Like you can't like cut up a piece right. of a pie within yourself and say, oh, like forty percent of the reason why you act this way is due to this, 20% is yeah. due to this. Right. Now, all that is showing is that in general populations, the source of variance that is explained in a general population. So even if that was true, I would say that in a general population, 10% of the circumstances of the millions of people in that population is explained by variable X and Y. But that right. could still leave room for like many, many people in that society for like most of the circumstances to explain, like to impact yeah. impact on them individually. So yeah. I think people do get really confused about. So I agree that's a silly chart, and I, that was probably a marketing ploy. It's a, there's so many pressures. Just to be fair for a second, to science writers, they go through a lot of getting beaten down, you know, through. Yeah. So maybe like it gets exciting to like get a chance for once to just step out and be like, oh, I'm going to like. This is the answer. Yeah. yeah. Like, you know, or even like there's these pressures from the publishers to name title books. Yes. Certain yes. I know what the I process is like and I try my best to resist those pressures. But you have to fight your battles sometimes because yeah. the publisher wants to sell the book. You yes. know, they and you, and, and and you want to sell the book, too. I want to sell my book. Yeah. yeah. No, and and that's. That's totally fair. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to sell the book either. I mean, you know, you want your ideas to go to a wider audience. I think it's great that books sell. You know, nobody wants the publishing industry to die and no books to sell. And, you know, I think it's important that right. people read would you Would you want the publishing industry to cut out all of the scientists who are overclaiming and only have the self-help industry exist? Right, from, right. Like, no, I mean, no, of course not. Of course yeah, not. Yeah, Absolutely yeah, not. Yeah. I just think that there should be maybe a little bit more... You know, putting back, and this isn't just in positive psychology, you know, I mean, you must have seen all the stuff about the replication crisis, you know, the big article that was in the oh, New yeah. York Times recently about Amy Cuddy and the Absolutely. power poses and all of these things. You know, I think it's a good moment for psychology to have some self-reflection because it's an incredibly exciting field. It's so compelling to the public. People are want to know this stuff. You know, we all want to know about ourselves and understand ourselves. And so I think good. it is a good moment to step back. And Yeah, this is good. No, this is really helpful. And I think that this illustrates a couple of things. One, it illustrates that the scientists are human too. And it's, sometimes people get shocked when they hear that, you know, like, yeah. oh my gosh, humans are prone to uh, the same sort of power motive as others. You know, so I want to say that's one thing this reveals is that, you know, and that's important for scientists to recognize amongst themselves that they could be they too can fall prey to the thrill of status and yeah, power and, and, and trying to keep that in check and staying true to the science is really important. And I, I think that's a good point. So I think there are, yeah, there are lessons here. It's good people like you, you know, who can like keep scientists honest. Um, right. And, and same with, you know, I'm a journalist by trade and, and you know, that's a, where we have our big role to play in this as well, because I think we take a scientific paper, we take the most exciting finding, we hype it up. So I think everybody has a part to play in this. But, you know, and as you say, I mean, writing a gratitude journal is probably not going to do you any harm. You know, it's not as though, you know, if you if you write down the good things that happen in your day, something terrible is going to happen. Of course, that's not true. So, you know, of all the battles to fight, this probably isn't. Mm -hmm. 
the biggest flaws. I would, but, I mean, I would argue the science does suggest that all things equal, right and gratitude will make it more likely that you'll show a lot of positive outcomes. I mean, the data does suggest that is the case. The idea of that a lot of our thoughts do influence our happiness and our outcomes in life is a true idea. You know, yes. it sounds like you're really arguing for a balance. I'm arguing for a balance because I think it took, it became very, very heavily biased one way. So I think we lived or we are living in an age, you know, Oprah of self-actualization, self-determination, self-help, all of these things where it's, you know, you just buy this book, download this app, do this thing, think the right thoughts, and then everything will be fine. But meanwhile, you know, the fabric of American society has kind of been crumbling a little bit. And we saw this with the recent election of Donald Trump, whatever your listeners think about him or you know you could see that there's a lot of people who are very upset and angry about the actual circumstances of their life and you know I think there's been too much emphasis on individual control and not enough on social circumstance personally so okay yeah that's a fair point it's a fair point I think about if I just saw the title of your book in the bookstore with no other context yeah I would agree with the title, I wouldn't have thought the book would be about what you wrote, but I would agree that, right. wow, you know, all humor aside, there is real suffering. Like, I feel like a lot yeah. of this belies a deeper point about perhaps the failure of a lot of clinical psychology to address our problems, which is really what the motivation for the field of positive psychology was in the first place. If I can defend positive psychology at all, it would be that at least the spirit of it was you know, the field of psychology has focused so much on the anxious and on the depressed and not looked at what we can do to get north of zero, right? Or to really flourish. Like, what does it mean to flourish in our lives? Now, you're not anti-flourishing, right? No, of course not. Of course not. Yeah. No, and I think that's, uh, and it's a very laudable thing. You know, it's a great thing to think, you know, what is the potential for human beings and for an individual life and for people to live their best life? All of those things are right. But it's very hard to flourish when you don't have health insurance, for example. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, one of my personal heroes, Abraham Maslow, he very much talked about, you know, those needs, those, those other needs that need to be satisfied first, and we shouldn't neglect them. So I am like 100% on the same page with you when it comes to, we kind of are neglecting that when we focus just on the positive. Yeah. I think that's a great point. Great, great point. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Well, you know, I Actually, interestingly, I just went to a conference all about Maslow's Pyramid. And, what? Um, yeah. In, uh, it was just a small thing. It was at Princeton. And I wrote a paper uh, um, for Society, the Journal. It was like an academic paper. but And one of the things that I was arguing was that, you know, you've got this pyramid where, obviously, as you've described it, you know, you've got food and shelter and all of these important things at the bottom. And then you've got self-actualization at the tip. But certain, especially in the corporate world, certain employers are selling self-actualization almost as an alternative to the um to the important things at the bottom you know so it's like you know you get pay rather than and and this is happening a lot so in a, a lot of workplaces in america you do not have health insurance paid vacation job security or the rest of it but you do have mindfulness classes wellness <laughs> seminars you know you do get yeah. gratitude lessons whatever and so that's a great point it's almost replacing these basics. I think it's a great point. And, you know, if Maslow was alive, he would, that would drive him crazy. And he would probably call a lot of that pseudo growth. 
You know, he has nice. he has a uh, in toward psychology of being. I read a lot of Maslow, and in toward in yeah. his book toward the psychology of being, he talks about. Um, in passing the idea of too many people trying to shoot too hot to the top of the pyramid too quick without getting the foundations first. And he called yeah. that he called that pseudo growth. So I would so actually rail, I, I would rail against that. And I think we're very much aligned in that vein. I would rail against pseudo growth. I'd rail against pseudo transcendence. I mean, you see a lot of people who are seeking spiritual transcendence, not built on a right. firm foundation. And you see a lot of yeah. very narcissistic gurus. That, right. that have pseudo grown. It's a great um, yeah, yeah. Uh, phrase. It's a great description. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. So I think, you know, maybe back channel uh, afterwards, if you could tell me some more information on that conference, I'd be really interested to hear. Yeah, it was that. just a very small thing. But yeah, I, of course, I'll send it to you and I'll send you the paper that I wrote. So. I'll put that on the show notes if you want me to. The paper yeah. you wrote. Yeah. Sure, why not? Yeah. Let's talk about the parenting happiness rat race. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what is that? Well, do you have kids? Or? Yeah, so I when we first moved here to um, to California, we had a, a one year old. I had a one year old son. Okay. Now I have another one and another one on the way, so we'll end up with three children. So this is kind of a topic. Congratulations! Thank you. So this is was pretty close to my heart, and this is probably the part of the book that was based the most on my own experiences. So it seems as though parenting styles, and I'm very much a part of this. You know, I am so caught up in this. I can't. I don't know how to break free, but. It seems like we have the same attitude about parenting that we do about our own happiness, which is that it's our kind of responsibility to build the per the perfectly happy child, you know, that we can, if we do everything right, and if we do all the right activities and the right this and the right parenting methods, and we read the right books, and if we just try, 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 try hard, yeah. then we can turn out this, you know, flawlessly happy baby, college student, whatever. And I think that the right. research has shown that this is kind of backfiring. Oh, yeah. It does appear to be backfiring. So what is the alternative to that? How should you, what's the best way of raising a child? I mean, there's no easy answer. It's easier, it's almost easier to criticize than to, uh, to it's come up with a solution. It's so much easier to criticize than it is to do it. And, you know, it's interesting. So when my mom comes over to visit from England and I can see that the way I parent must drive her absolutely crazy. I mean, when we were kids, you know, she left us to our own devices a lot and she was a wonderful mother and in, extremely kind and generous with her time and all the rest of it, but she was not there playing with me every moment and doing, you know, painting and finger painting and puzzles and this and that, you know, the stuff that I do constantly with my kids. And so, and I can see, I sort of see it through her eyes and, you know, she never says anything, but it must just look like I'm such a helicopter about their happiness. So mm. I think part of it is standing back a bit and just letting them make their own mistakes and get on with things and not trying to fix things and not trying to, you know, to make everything perfect all the time. And I find that hard, you know. It is hard. I mean, not that I know because I'm not a parent, but I can imagine it's hard. And I mean, it's hard as I'm a teacher, right? That's, that's close, right? I, I mean, right. I, yeah. And so you'll uh, see. I deal with. I guess yeah. a college student. Level, yeah, college right? student. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But uh, your point well taken about the parenting happiness rat race. But are you familiar with Lee Waters' research at all or her book on applying positive psychology to parenting? It is actually <laughs> a very well-reasoned, helpful book, I think, because it's it's all about bringing out the strengths and kind of bringing out the best in your child. And I yeah. see that as a very worthy goal. And that's a, a somewhat different goal than just happiness. Yes. Yeah. And I think so too. I mean, it's funny when you said that, you know, and you said, oh, you'll probably roll your eyes. Actually, the complete opposite was happening. I was kind of adjusting it down and thinking, oh, I've got to buy that book. Because parenting is one area where people, even the most sort of skeptical, you know, the person who'd never buy a self-help book under any other circumstances suddenly will eat up 
self-help parenting books because we're just desperate to get it right. And, you know, the stakes feel so high. Yeah. You don't want to do your child any damage. You know, I would be very interested to read the book. One thing that I've noticed from having kids and I, you know, in my obviously enormous sample of two children, it's really led me to feel that your basic attitude, whether it's positive or negative, is innate. My kids are so different in that. I felt like one of them automatically is just so positive about everything. Everything's, it's fine. Don't worry. I fell over. I'll get up again. Everything's fine. Oh, this, you know, it's a sunny day. It's great. And he just is like that. And the other one is like very brooding, tends to focus on the negative in a situation, you know, and they, they just kind of came out like that. And I, I mean, maybe I have parented them differently or responded to them differently, but it feels like there's something yeah. about our attitude, which is, you know, that was an eye opener for me anyway. Well, that speaks to the role of genes. In right, di- as we, yeah. differentiating different yeah. personalities yes, are influencing right. that. Talk, going back to the pie, the pie, uh, the, exactly the pie. Uh, let's talk a little bit about God's plan for happiness. Yeah. So yeah. one thing that I looked at when I was writing the book was that the data really shows that religious people are happier than non-religious people. I just this is pretty consistent across societies, and especially in the United States, the effect is even bigger that, you know, that this is true kind of across the board. And as somebody who's not religious myself, you know, I'm Jewish, but not spiritual. And this was really fascinating to me. So I I kind of wanted to know why. And then I also found out that amongst religious people, the most happy of all religious people, so religious people are happier than non-religious people. And the happiest religion of all is our Mormons. So Mormons are amongst the happiest people in America. So I went to Salt Lake City and I spent some time with a Mormon family there and I spent some time there and it was a really fascinating experience and very counterintuitive in lots of ways but I think the reasons why religious people are happier than non-religious people kind of speak to all of us in a way which is that they tend to come down to the fact that religious people have stronger social networks and social connections than non-religious people. But Mormons, as well as being the happiest people in America, also have the highest rate of antidepressant use. So it's a kind of complicated... Oh, that's interesting. Paradox there. So, you know, what's driving what, you know? How many... Yeah, do do religious individuals, are are they more likely to take antidepressants than Uh, not? Yeah, who knows? I think that one of the things that I found was that in Mormon culture, there's a very, very strong cultural pressure to be happy. Mm. And it's sort of seen as being godly. So, you know, to admit to not being happy is quite a big admission. So I think when they do these happiness polls and they call people up and say, you know, on a scale of one to ten, how happy are you? You know, I think you're probably more likely to answer a higher score if you're a Mormon than if you're not, because you feel like it's the virtuous thing to say. And I think there's also... That's a good point. That's a very good point. Yeah. You know, and I think there's a big cultural pressure, especially on Mormon women, to look very, very happy with your lot. You know, you have several kids, you stay home, you look after them, and you have to not just do it, but you have to look happy about it. And so I think that is a lot of pressure on people. And I think that might explain part of the reason why the antidepressant use as well. Hmm. Fair enough. So I want to just make clear about happiness is in the field of positive psychology, we kind of view well being as a broader right. umbrella than just. Happiness is, you know, I think you're equating with like feeling good. And I think you're, yeah. you're very quite right that we focus too much on having to feel good all the time. And, and you also make a good point about neglecting more communal values. Right. And so I think we are agreeing on that. And I also 
did want to make clear that, you know, there are so many scientists in the field of positive psychology that are trying to look at various aspects of well-being that you would very much think is worthy of investigating, including communal assets. I mean, there are researchers that are studying the things that you care about. Exactly. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's all the case. And I'd be happy to that's send you great. references, et yeah. cetera. So I want to, um, to see that. yeah, I'm really appreciative of your time. And I want to, I like to usually end with some of my favorite quotes from my uh, guests. So let me just finish here and, and read one of my favorite quotes of yours. We need to think of well-being as a shared responsibility rather than an individual quest and to develop a discourse of happiness that engages with people's problems rather than dismisses them. Acknowledging privilege and injustice and work against them rather than blaming people for their own misfortunes and developing a vision of happiness that is inclusive and generous and socially aware. I couldn't be more on board with that goal. So thanks for chatting with me today. Thank you. Great to be here. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Psychology Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. That's thepsychologypodcast.com. Also, please add a rating and review of the Psychology Podcast on iTunes. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the podcast, and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.